Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court and CPS issues. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. And to honor alienated parents next month on International Parental Alienation Awareness Day, Epiphany Awaits is offering a faith-based retreat for alienated parents with both in-person and a Zoom option on April 23rd through the 25th. 2021 at the Resolution Center in Jacksonville, Florida. Only $100 for a weekend of support for the journey with speakers including Dr. Mark Roseman and other professionals focused on guidance, friendship, and compassion. Um, seating is limited and discounts apply to registration before March 15th. Uh, after March 15th, it's $125 registration fee. Scholarships are available. Email requests for application and registration form <clears throat> to epiphaniesawait at gmail.com. That's E-P-I-P-H-A-N-I-E-S-A-W-A-I-T at gmail.com. I have got a very special guest. Her name is Barbara Joy Hansen, and she gives a face to domestic violence and sexual abuse trauma. As an international speaker and author to listen to the cry of the child, Barbara is a domestic violence survivor of childhood incest, preteen crime, and devastating losses, including betrayal in her marriage, which led to infertility and adoption. After living with a silent scream for 38 years, Barbara facilitates the Beauty Out of Ashes support group, teaching battered women as well as working with male survivors online. She has a voice, a God-given purpose, and passion with his mission to help survivors, former addicts, prisoners, and sex offenders. Also. Uh, Barbara is um, a talk show co-host with NAASCA Stop Child Abuse Now, and she is an award-winning author, and she's a volunteer prison chaplain. She's a speaker, life coach, and Survivors Against Violence Everywhere ambassador for Massachusetts. And I totally welcome you, Barbara Joy Hansen. How are you this evening? I am so looking forward to the show, Marianne, and talking to you and sharing my story, my journey out of darkness with you into the light. Thank you. I, I, was, I was so glad to have you on because you're going to teach us a lot of things. And I noticed that you also counsel men online that have been sexually abused as well. Oh, yeah. I Well, I have... Um, I like working with women. I think women should work with women. But if men, I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of people have been abused. One out of three women, one out of five girls, one out of three girls, one out of five boys. Every two minutes, a child's molested. One out of three predators go on to molest. And uh, while most children don't go on to molest, most molested children do not become sexual predators. But incest is the largest and the most damaging secret ever. 80% of all sexual abuse is incest. And 97% are responsible for abuse cases. And they're not usually strangers, as you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you ever get called into court to testify or... Um... I have, yeah, I have gone to, I've had to write, not had, but I've written letters for battered women mm -hmm. that have gone to court. I've gone into court with them a few times. I've gone to court with a um, Boston gangster that shot people and uh, 
I, you know, my husband and I have taken in, we've rescued that. That was my addiction, codependency, rescuing and mm-hmm. taking in inmates, especially one particular one that was a male heroin uh, addict. And I knew nothing growing up in a preacher's home, pastor's home. I knew nothing about what I was doing, but my heart was so broken for them with the deep gift of compassion and empathy that I just did what I did. And I learned through the process of uh, elimination and letting go and, and letting God and healing this broken, wounded soul in, in our broken marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tell us about your um, journey through this. Um, when do you realize that, you know, all this happened to you and your feelings, like, what do you do now? I mean, did you get really depressed and despair? How, no, how- I, no, I see the, the PTSD was, was so heavy on my head and it created such dark wounds. It's like the uh, so- soldiers in the war, you're frozen into silence and you're numb. And uh, I'm a rape survivor. I couldn't even say that word either because uh, college-age boyfriend pushed himself on me and fell in love with him. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I was primed for violence. Uh, but the terrifying crimes uh, resulting with PTSD, I don't know if you've heard, it's like amnesia. Mm-hmm. And it creates invisible wounds around a traumatic event or many traumatic events that you actually can't recall and you're so stuck. And that was me. It, it, I mean, you could have a child burned, a uh, child run, around, run out in front of a car. It can be any kind of, um, you know, thing that goes deeper. And the more crippling wounds that you have, the deeper it goes. And so you start wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're isolated, panic. I had sleep disorders. I walked in my sleep, screamed in my sleep. Uh, it's like the elephant in the room that you walk around and you can't, um, you know, you, I didn't know anything. I, there were no words to talk about it because incest started with me at the age of two until eight by my mother's father. He molested me, my cousins and my mother. My mother couldn't protect me uh, because of the traumatic wounds in her, in her that she couldn't remember until I broke the generational curse when my mom was 83 years old. And people don't understand, well, you know, why didn't she, why did she send you out with grandpa in the car, my grandfather? And why, you know, didn't she talk to you? Well, it, it's so deep. The trauma is so hidden. Uh, and I didn't have words to tell at that age, but at age eight, I finally told, uh, myself, (laughs) you know, and this little girl thought, okay, in my head, how can I, I knew something was up, but I didn't know what. So at age eight, I didn't go near him again or hug him again. And I thought somebody's going to wonder. Nobody asked me. When we'd go to their house, my grandmother was a funny, happy soul, climbed up in bed with her, and she told me, she was from England, and she told me funny stories. So that made my safe place with my grandma. And going to their home, it was so hidden, I couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. I couldn't recall. So at age eight, I shut down on him, 
and I never hugged him hello or goodbye ever again. Did he ever question you or did, you know, um, nothing? No. So probably nothing was ever said because he, he probably figured you had him figured out. <laughs> well, right? he was 101 when he died. Wow. And I had to wait. I don't like the word bastard, but that's what he was to me. Mm -hmm. He wasn't my grandfather. Um, and so at age eight, I shut down and he'd do things to me in the car. I'd go over on the side trying to jump out of the car. He'd mm -hmm. unzip himself, do things to himself, pull my hand over. And I mean, I was two years old. Give me a break. You know, I didn't know what was going on. And a lot of kids have gone through this. Mm -hmm. Then I went to a youth camp uh, at age 11 and 12. I was molested by a 27-year-old pastor. And I asked my husband the other day, I said, do you call that rape? He said, well, did he penetrate you? And I said, no. But he uncovered himself and, you know, masturbated while I was on his lap. He was 27. I was 11. How terrible. You know, mm -hmm. so, yeah, and, and I faced him. In 1998, I went back to the campground in New York State. Uh, it's with my Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, denomination that I grew up in. And uh, I saw a best friend that I hadn't seen in 27 years. She'd gone through the same abuse with the same clergy and couldn't tell anybody. She was an intake counselor at a drug rehab. I hadn't seen her in 27 years. So the afternoon I saw her, she grew up with me and she was a pastor's daughter and a pastor's wife went through addictions. And she um, poked me on the shoulder at night they had uh, evening services at the camp and started weeping. And I, she practically ran down to the altar while I knelt down and I knew exactly what happened to her. I told her his name before she told me his. And um, sure enough, it was him, we were inseparable. Then she went back home to Ohio and she told her pastor's wife that grew up at that campground. And she said, do you know any other survivors? Because she didn't tell her my name because that was my secret. And so when she uh, said, you need to write letters to the denominational headquarters, which has, that was hard. I, I'd never done that before. I had to recall everything and go back. And I wrote letters. They formed a committee with eight clergy and a well-known psychologist. No stone was unturned. Oh yeah, there were more victims. Some wouldn't come forward because uh, then the family secret's going to be out. Everybody's going to know my story, and they wouldn't. But now there were three, me and, you know, three others. So there were four of us, and uh, letters were sent to a lot of people, names I gave them. They formed a discipline committee, and it was a um, discipline committee for him, and a, a sex abuse, sex assault hearing for, for us. And he was in complete denial, denied everything. And they taped his testimony before I faced him. I didn't think I'd ever be able to do it. I'm, I had such panic attacks. Uh, and so the four of us flew to Florida. Me and one of my friends are, are the closest of buddies at this camp, flew together and then the other two women and one at a time we entered that room. 
And the strangest thing is, this was in 1998 that I faced my friend. The following summer in 1999, I faced the accused, the, the clergy, with three of my friends. It was the most difficult, courageous thing I ever did in my entire life. And uh, I brought a photo of me as a little, um, as the 11 year old child that he wounded. And I'm gonna show you this photo, if I can find it in my book. Okay, it's this photo right here of me as a scrawny looking little preteen that hated my body. I was anorexic. I drank milkshakes thinking that's what's wrong. I just need to gain weight. I was underweight, undeveloped. Um, PTSD and all this trauma that I went through uh, created such a void and, and the void in my marriage as well because things happened in my marriage, sexual things that never should have come in with uh, pornography and infidelity. So one trauma after the other after the other shattered me and the pain sent me reeling and the rug was jerked underneath my feet out. So, but the neat thing happened was in being able to face him with three others. And I showed him the picture of me and I read my one and a half hour testimony in the room. And uh, I said, who hurt you so bad that you had to hurt me? He looked like one of the addicts that we work with Marianne, mm -hmm. with a disheveled shirt. Uh, I'm sure he was scared to death. And I didn't, you know, I didn't feel shame when I saw him. I didn't, I just felt sad. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel empathy. I just felt really sad. And he told me when I said, who hurt you so bad that you had to hurt me? He told me I was raised in a Christian home like you and I don't recall being molested, but thank you for coming. And then he said something I never thought we'd hear and everybody in the room was shocked, including the psychologist. He said, can you ever find it in your heart to forgive me? I said, forgive you? Of course I would forgive you, but you need to run into recovery for all those kids you harmed. Do you know sex offenders hurt 150 to 350 children or more per, per perpetrator that is in coaches abusing children that they coach in the 1999 issue of uh, the coaches and, and you know there's coaches that are in prison now that have been molested that, mm -hmm. that molest and they probably have been molested because a lot of sex offenders target children they can't fit into the adult world they are targeted sometimes themselves. They're raised in abusive alcoholic homes with deep insecurities and rage, and their boundaries are crossed to meet their own perverted needs. They have a void in their soul, and so do we. And um, any sexual activity, visual, psycho uh, psychological, verbal, spiritual, um, that hurts another human being is like a fish to a fish hook, reeling us in with generational curses in exodus 34 7 it says um yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children to the third and the fourth generation the sins of the fathers so my generational curse 
was broken with my voice when I finally told my mother when she was 83 years old. And do you know, she told me and my father never knew it that yes, I've been molested. And my father put his hand on her arm and said, no, 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 Dottie called her dot. And uh, she's, you know, we were all crying at the kitchen table and, um, and the generational curse was broken. Mm -hmm. You've been through a lot and, you know, how, how hard is it to forgive these, you know what I mean? Because a lot yeah. of people say, I can't forgive, you know, I can't forget. I get it. Yeah. A lot of people don't and they won't. And, you know, in the sexual abuse, domestic violence course that I teach, I don't tell people they have to forgive. That's like the last link of the chain. Mm -hmm. uh, but forgiveness is not easy and it isn't something that you just can do. You have to work through your grief. Grieving for me was a huge portion of my healing, my soul healing. Um, I was spiritually abused by uh, a church. I'd blown the whistle on the camp and two churches and uh, Things that happened in churches are swept under the rug and the pastors aren't trained. 9% 9% of clergy know how to help us. That's not very many. They aren't trained in seminary. However, my denomination has a course uh, at the Alliance Theological Seminary to teach this stuff. And the forgiveness, I prematurely forgave. I forgave my husband too quickly, keeps you stuck. Anger is a natural response for, from being betrayed. So you hold on to that poison deep in your soul with your unforgiveness and it becomes like a noose around your neck and it strangles us. So you're really letting that ember of hatred go when you say, I forgive. But Gandhi says, if we live an eye for an eye, the world would be blind. So we have to make a decision. We either forgive or we hold the fist open and allow the anger to go or we hold on to the bitterness that destroys our spirit and our soul at what point does a victim i mean it must take years for someone to forgive oh, it what does. years and years decades. Which is, uh, decades i was just going to say you know um when you meet people you know like what condition are they in when they when you meet people and they're telling you their story they aren't healed most of them maybe they've written a book mm -hmm. you can write a book you can speak but if you haven't healed you know it's it's just your story mm -hmm. you need to move from victim to survivor to me victorious survivor to thriver to courageous survivor and be able to tell people the answers and the awareness that they need. So my book has many, many answers in it. Mm -hmm. It's called Listen to the Cry of the Child, The Deafening Silence of Sexual Abuse. Mm -hmm. And can I tell you about the cover? I was looking at the cover and it looks like it's, there's a flower pot that's cracked with a flower on it on top of a bunch of garbage bags. And well, how did you come, did you draw that out yourself or did, did you have someone else do the artwork? Well, the wonderful gift is my son. He is an art teacher. And he gave me a gift by designing the cover and all the illustrations in the book. So the 
picture, you're right, has a garbage heap. God woke me up three nights in a row with the cover of my book. And I, I mean, I woke out up out of a deep sleep. And the cover of my book has the garbage heap with a clay pot cracked, tossed like that rag doll that's crying on the heap with a toy airplane and the baby carriage. I couldn't understand why, God, why garbage? My life isn't garbage. But in his still small voice, he said to my spirit, my child, there's life in that clay pot. Sometimes people toss you out. Maybe you're raised in a home with no parents. Maybe you're raised by an alcoholic crazy dad. Uh, maybe you're not wanted. Maybe you've been tossed out uh, with adoption. We adopted our firstborn child because I couldn't conceive. Mm. And God said, your life's been broken and poured out as a drink offering with passion and a purpose to give hope to others just like you. So there's a seed in that pot that's growing with a beautiful rose, which is blossoming and blooming. My life once was dead is now really born again like that rose, fragile, fragrant. The thorns are like the hard places that you have that you've gone through, but the rose is now open. And that was the only thing that when I was working with my producer to, to publish my book, she asked me about the cover. I said, I want the rose. I only want the rose color. I don't want, you know, I want the rest of the book with no color. And that's me blossoming and blooming now. It's a beautiful cover. Well, he did it. That's me. That's a picture of me, the sad little girl holding mm -hmm. her teddy bear with the eye and the nose mm -hmm. in my grandfather's car, in his bath time with my, mm -hmm. when I would go and take a bath, he'd enter. I mean, he did unthinkable things to me. Uh, so did the youth pastor and other people in my life. There were more than one perpetrator. And uh, in 1998, I faced my friend. 1999, I faced the accused. Believe it or not, in 1997, only one year earlier, I think there were about 30-some missionary kids in Mama Alliance Academy in Gabon, Guinea, South Africa in a boarding school. Missionary children were separated from their parents. Now, I could never do this. They flew these little children, like three, four, five-year-old, and I believe they were sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. These children did not see their parents for a whole year. They were sent to this academy where the mom and dad thought they were protected in a remote jungle with no phones or no communication, no emails. And as adult abuse survivors of all kinds, I mean, they went through, they pulled the teeth without any Novocaine. One woman went to Mexico to learn how to pull teeth. They wet their pants. They were separated from the brothers and sisters. There was no protection. And, and it was a cover-up because they moved this clergy, uh, the one I'm speaking about, to the Bahamas to further do youth ministry which they further, he further harmed children. So they formed an independent council of an investigation and they asked questions. The committee said, what will, they, what will this cost us? Do I need to send these adult, you know, survivors to therapy or will there be lawsuits or will we be embarrassed? But one man spoke up and he said, no, we need to do the right thing. We need to protect these little ones. 
we need to have healing, restoration, forgiveness in a retreat. So they sent them to a retreat, the adult survivors. And he said, if one child, one was abused, dear colleagues, there was a failure. And then not the question, what will it cost or will we be sued or will we be embarrassed? The only question he said we must ask is, dear God, can we do the right thing? Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's the um, bringing people to accountability. Yes. And that's what has to happen a lot more with cases like these. And they send out a forgiveness letter in the Alliance Life. They put out a magazine every month. Every month, And they, they send out a mag magazine with an apology letter to all abuse survivors. And that was, a, that was good for me to read that. Uh, but you know what? I've been affected forever. Mm -hmm. I've been called into this ministry. God has a full-time ministry for me. I didn't listen for a while. I was codependent with these drug addicts. Uh, we brought them in our house. It was a, we thought it was a safe house. I, I brought a woman and her two children in the house that was battered and both her husband and she were sexually assaulted. And I tried to deny that call for a long time. It was a high price, a very, very high price to this call. I've had much persecution. I've been ostracized. I've been criticized. And it was a choice I needed to make. Listen to the voice of others and their approval. Be silenced and victimized again. Or listen to the call of God. So he's taught me to listen and obey him alone. And listen for his still small voice. And he always prepares you for for the call. You don't have to kick doors open if you're called into this. And I know you have a calling on your life as well, Marianne. Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> but it, you know, and it's difficult because I have, I've always said like advocacy chooses you. You don't choose it. It chooses you. Yes, you're right. And it, it's very difficult, you know, like even for your own family members to, you know, I don't disagree with you or I don't yeah. know how it has been with your family members or, you know. Well, my mom and dad were very, very supportive. Um, after I finally told my mother the secret, and that was when I was going to face the clergy, um, I, you know, it all spilled out and we wept at the table and then she crawled in bed with me the next day and told me, yes, it really did happen. And she told me more. And, you know, people have yelled at me, you know, like I said, criticized me. Um, I want to say something. Shame says I did something wrong. Blame says something's wrong with me. Shame says I did a bad thing. I stole money out of my mother's purse. Shame says I did a bad thing. Blame says I am the bad person. Mm -hmm. You need to run from toxic people. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of toxicity, a lot of toxic people, and I had to let go of all of them, including the heroin addict. And he overdosed in 2005, and and the Boston gangster went blind, and and I haven't heard from him in years. I don't work like that with addicts anymore. It, the the support group that I do, um, you know, helps people heal, uh, and we you you know you can call me at 508. 473-1280 for my book 
You can email me at bobbyjoyhanson at juno.com, small case, B-O-B-B-I-E-J-O-Y-H-A-N-S-E-N at juno.com. Please order my book. If you know anybody that's gone through abuse of any kind, um, my book has so many answers and awareness and, and truth of my own story and how to heal. So that's the answer and how to heal the damage that sexual assault and sexual abuse and domestic violence has done. With people that you have spoken to, do they hit like a plateau where they're just, for lack of a better sentence, spinning their wheels and they're still remaining angry or bewildered? Is there is there a way to get past that quickly or do they have to plateau and just get through that? There's no quick answer for anything that we've gone through in what I'm speaking about. When you're shattered, I thought I had a Kodak picture family, but there's no Lever to Beaver family anywhere, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you haven't gone through stuff, you will. Uh, so my mirror image of my family was shattered Maybe it was good that I couldn't tell or I didn't tell because we raised three sons in a wonderful home with skateboarders coming and a pool in our backyard. And, you know, and then after they left, the silence set in and I, that's when the memory started surfacing. Mm -hmm. And um, but your mind is like a computer. You retain everything in your mind that's happened to you. You can recall it uh, and or you can keep bound by mental uh, illness mm -hmm. with shame. And incest is one of the most damaging secrets that hold you in the tightest of chains. So that, yeah, with people that I work with, not an awful lot of people have healed, but when they, when they uh, finally get a chance to read my book and it'll give you answers and awareness, uh, there's so much in it, not just my whole story. There's a, there's a chapter about forgiveness. There's a chapter about, um, infidelity there's a chapter about the adoption process we mm -hmm. adopted our firstborn son because i absolutely couldn't get pregnant so infertility shut my body down mm -hmm. i didn't know i didn't tell my doctor for the maybe two three four years ago uh and doctors don't usually ask you uh you know i i tried for years to conceive went through infertility and my husband didn't understand i didn't understand so people that have been abused are usually very bitter and they're very angry people and you could tell um i fundraise at walmart i am so blessed walmart is so open to me i have eight bookings this spring and summer at walmart to sit there with my domestic violence table with my survivors against violence everywhere global outreach um, I have just been named the title of this uh, network with Eileen Dong. Uh, she's from Asia, and she's done two phenomenal interviews with me. And I sit there, and I have a can where people put money in. Now, I don't sell my book, but if they put a $20 bill in, which is what my book is, plus shipping and handling, um, they get a book. Some people say, no, I don't want to read your book, you know, or give it to somebody else. So I've had trans, I've had gays, lesbians, 
those are the ones Jesus loved the most. He went into the bars. He went into the, you know, the outcasts, lepers. He healed them all. And that's what my story, that's what my life is doing now. And I love my work. I'm called into it. So I wouldn't change anything. And if you can smile and you've been through it, you, you know you're healed. If you have this mask on and, you, and there's shame and you're hidden, uh, I mean, I can tell. I had a trans come to me at Walmart that uh, put a dollar in the can. And she was so shut down. She had a man bun. And I absolutely loved her. And I said, you've been abused, right? After I told my story. Yes. I handed her a book. She said, no, I can't afford it. I said, no, it's for you. It's yours free. She started weeping and crying and going over to have a cigarette break with her friends and knelt down. And she couldn't stop crying. Now I'm going to cry because I remember that moment. Mm -hmm. I remember that person. I remember, you know, holding their hand and touching them and loving them and being the kind, compassionate person that I am. Um, those are the kind of people that need hope and awareness and answers. And if they don't get it, they're going to stay stuck forever. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's hard for them because they're wondering what happened, how to deal with these emotions. They could be new emotions. And like you said, past remembrances and right. they're dealing with that. And um, yeah, I feel sorry for these people as well. Um, when I was a nurse, I would run into these types of people as well. Mm -hmm. And um, it's good. You were there for them. And, and that, that's what they need because you know, a lot of people cannot afford counseling. <laughs> you know, they don't have health insurance, right. things like that. I didn't have therapy. My therapy was the heroin addict, before he went back to prison, gave me this wonderful recovery devotional Bible hmm. by, by Zondervan. And it's, it's so falling apart. And it's so full of awareness and answers and recovery answers. As you can see, it's literally falling apart. I have every, every page highlighted in it. Mm. it has, it's an AA-based Bible. Now, I have friends that go to AA, they go to NA, sexual addiction, all those things. And a lot of times those are hookups. Um, mm. Men to women, blah, blah, blah. You know, at, but... Sometimes it helps people, so I don't knock it. And I've been at a couple of AA meetings with a woman that I sponsored for years. She was an ex-prostitute. Uh, met her in my church. She started weeping and weeping and weeping, and I don't go there anymore. But I knew she was abused. I gave her my book. She came to my, through my group twice. She brought others with her into my support group. She started healing. Is she healed yet? No, I know that. She still has a lot of anger and rage. She still, you know, has addictions, but she got a lot of awareness and answers and she absolutely loves me and I love her just the way she is. It's okay because she will heal someday. She has a lot of answers and awareness. So um, that Bible literally changed my life. The men in the Committee of Restoration and Discipline had never seen a Bible like that, the preachers. and 
uh, the heroin addict, uh, I, he, he never knew how much that gift was to me by giving me his Bible that was marked up and then I've got it all highlighted and marked up as well. But that healed me, my support group healed me, my writing my book healed me, but the most important thing was grieving. When I was writing my book and penning my book, I started grieving and grieving and grieving. Grieving is a slow, long journey where you feel all alone and uh, empathy says, I'm sorry, or sympathy says, I'm sorry, but empathy walks in your shoes uh, with somebody else that's gone through it. And you feel, you, you, you're not alone anymore. You feel the pain. I call it Jesus tears. Cause when I, when I cry with somebody, um, I, you know, it's that deep compassion, that gift of compassion with deep empathy spilling out of my, not only my soul damage and losses, but in writing my book, I started healing and, you know, I had it in journals. I was afraid I'd die first and one of my kids would find my journals. All the pain was written there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't look at those journals for 38 years. Mm. I quit my nanny job. I had a nanny job for 14 years. I knew I was going to write a book. My husband and I belong to Christian Motorcycles Association. We, we ride a motorcycle with my leather chaps and my prison team on the back of my vest and leather vest. We've gotten involved with Hell's Angels, uh, not with them, but at our Christian motorcycles, they come up to us and, you know, wonder what our ministry is about. And um, it, I mean, there's nobody that I won't talk to. There's nobody that I won't help. Mm -hmm. But when grief happens, you've got to let it spill out. If you're stuck, you can tell somebody is stuck by their face, by their eyes, by their inability to, to, to cry. And we need to cry with them and help them heal. Listen to their story as well as tell ours. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very true. Everything you said, um, you know, because I mean, I've been in counseling, I don't know, <laughs> since I was 19, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, you know, a lot of people are just lifers when it comes to counseling. Yeah. And, and you know, um, just dealing with everything, anything. And people, you know, some people just are not patient, or they just say, get over it, snap right. out of it. I don't know. I'm sure you've heard that. Oh, yeah, just get over it, right? Right. <laughs> can't. You can't. Yeah, you can't. It just doesn't work that way. It just no. doesn't. And like, uh, when someone said that to you, how did you respond? Someone said what? Like, say, snap out to of get it. Get over it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, some people you just can't talk to. Right. My yeah. Mom and dad my mom and dad were my best supporters. They both died a year apart. Um, and my mom was my best friend. I told her secrets that she didn't tell my father. Um, I didn't tell her these secrets, but she kept those secrets close to her heart. She was a wonderful, godly mother, wonderful pastor's wife. They were missionaries to Australia uh, for five years. And when I would hear somebody say, oh, just get over it. Some people 
will look at you and you can't tell your story because you know that they're not going to accept it. So I've, I've learned to tune in and listen carefully to what they're really asking me or what they don't want to know. Sometimes I just can't say anything to, to some family. I had a cousin when I spilled the secrets at my uncle's funeral, my grandfather was a pedophile. My mother's brother, my uncle was a pedophile. My cousins told me when I was about eight, seven or eight years old that they were molested by their father as well as my grandfather, their grandfather. So he was, we called him Uncle Happy because he was happy all the time. That's a cover up. So was the jovial youth pastor, happy all the time, molested us in the mission house, molested us in the lake, wherever he could get us. And, uh, and I was a shy, introverted little girl that, that they know they can target. And so when somebody says, just get over it, you just can't. So you have to be careful who you tell. I used to tell everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I spilled my secrets way too soon because um, I didn't have answers. And, you know, people were shocked. But people I grew up with in Texas, my husband and I met and fell in love at Laterno University down there. And I was the secretary there. And we went to his um, college reunion a few years ago, not long ago. And I was asked to speak in two psychology departments. Uh, which was amazing, and then book sign in their bookstore, which was huge. And I met male survivors, and that's one of them I, I did work with online. He went through, I think he went through my course three times. He, on the forgiveness part, he couldn't forgive his mother. His mother and his father uh, molested him and his sisters, and he couldn't get past it. So he read the chapter way towards the end of, of the book, Beyond the Darkness, which is out of print that I can provide if people want to order that from me as well. But when uh, he wrote the letter to his mother, now you can burn it, you can rip it up, anybody that you need to forgive, you don't have to see them. Maybe they're gone, they're dead or in prison. So he wrote this letter, he knocked on her door, shoved it in the door and ran and got in his car. He couldn't face her and that's fine. Now she doesn't want to see him. She's, you know, she's horrible to him. And, uh, but he's, he's healing. Uh, he's overweight and that's part of the addiction. Uh, mine was underweight. Uh, people that have been abused bite their nails or they bite, chew on pens. Um, they suck their thumbs as an adult which is not appropriate. I spoke at a conference where a woman was like that in the front row sucking her thumb. And I knew she was a victim. And afterwards I counseled her and, you know, people came up to me, but uh, you can tell. And when, when they say just get over it, there's no way you can just get over something as tragic as things that I've gone through. How did, all this affect your future as you became an adult? Well, it took, my husband's very supportive of me now. I thank God for him. Um, 
as you met him in the beginning of the show. And um, he's my IT man. Mm-hmm. We are so in love. God's healed everything. And that's a miracle, mm-hmm. a total, total miracle. Because most people, when, the, when things like pornography and infidelity come in, um, I mean, it wasn't hardcore pornography, but it's a disrespect of your life. It's a loss. Uh, when you make a vow to your spouse at the altar, you make a vow to God in, and the others are there um, and the rug is jerked out from underneath your feet, you're shattered and you're in denial and anger and, and uh, lust leads to the death of a marriage or a relationship. I know, I know a lot of people that are in and out of relationship and you do too one after the other after the other they think they're going to find the you know the best man on on the earth and they end up in a worse relationship so god's warnings are severe um premature forgiveness kept me stuck and nobody's perfect i mean i'm not perfect i went through things i was codependent i took the addicts in my husband you know a lot i mean i went to the cape cod into crack houses, in and out of bars, to try to find this guy that we met in prison, this heroin addict, 19 years younger. When he was sober, he was as nice as could be. But that was the dark side. That, I mean, another time you can interview me about that, but that was a very, very dark time in my life that I'll never forget. But I believe it prepared me for my, you know, my mission and my, my ministry. Because now I understand. I understand my uh, inability to heal. I didn't have awareness. I didn't have answers. I didn't, you know, I had triggers. Uh, People think sexual abuse is about sex. It is not about sex. It's about power and control. Mm -hmm. Usually they target, pedophiles target children because they don't fit in with adults. Mm-hmm. And the person I'm thinking of right now is Michael Jackson. Now they say he didn't do it, but I know he did it. And he got, and he paid off the victims. And maybe someday his adult kids will come forward with that secret. I don't know. But sexual um, pedophilia is, it can be verbal, visual, psychological, spiritual, um, exploiting a person to meet their emotional needs, uh, leading to power and control. So incest, like I said, is one secret that holds us in the tightest of all chains, uh, where there seems to be no, no escape. Even long after the abuse, like for me, 38 years, uh, I had so much to recover from and I didn't recover. Uh, I've been in ministry for 23 years and I wrote my book and I'm in my third publishing of it. Um, I'm selling a whole lot of copies now, and it's a very easy read. If you can't read very well, you can read my book as a page turner, but um, it will give you all the answers that you need, and um, you know it'll, it'll really help you heal. So I hope you order copies from me. Uh, call my number, 508-473-1280. Um. Yeah, I know you said you've been to court with people. Yeah. Um, have you ever, well, things are going on where judges are giving kids to the abuser. 
Um, okay, so you know, I I know you can't stop that either. No. You know, I mean, it's just horrible to see this go on. And um, what do you think of that? You want my honest answer? <laughs> hey, you know, go right ahead. <laughs> okay, because um, I don't think the system protects kids at all. Mm -mm. I, I really don't. I My brother went through it with his son that he raised, uh, and he went through court after court after court to try to get the child from his birth parents who were not healthy and um then they adopted him i think he took him in maybe when he was one or two years old and they adopted him but the court didn't help him he spent thousands of dollars um and he's a brilliant doctor now uh graduated from nyu so he's really risen above the ashes hmm. but no court really doesn't help i i don't know it's maybe you have a different opinion than i do no i, I agree with you it's a broken system and yeah. it's just perpetuating itself in so many ways. Right. I mean, not just, you know, the parental alienation picture, but in other ways, such as well, what well, you look at saying. COVID. Mm -hmm. Look at COVID. You know, these children um, maybe have a parent missing, parents in prison, alcoholic mother, father. They don't know how to teach their children. Maybe they don't have a computer. Maybe the dad's molesting them. Maybe he's angry walking in drunk you talk about covid i've had unbelievable doors open with the media calling my house twice a week i have another show tomorrow to next week to the following week and i don't have to search now because um i think i found you on twitter is, is that right i i thought well was it linkedin or linkedin i don't i don't know yeah. but linkedin has been a really big venue for me uh with people calling me and wanting shows um and i take the summer off pretty much because i really need relief and vacation and we go to our cabin uh our son used to call it the little house in the woods the one where i was molested at the camp campgrounds we have a cabin there mm -hmm. and it's a it's a wonderful place to go the memories don't hold any bondage over me anymore so i'm very blessed to be able to go there with my husband my brother has a cabin there and and he's he uh he's a professor in pennsylvania and i just uh you know i love him to death and we were very very close but i do miss my parents they were my greatest supporters um some people in the family don't want to talk about it they don't want me even talking to my grandchildren about it but now i have my uh, 21 year old granddaughter who drives coming over twice a week uh, her father we adopted and I told her everything she wanted to know her father wouldn't talk to her about it so she wanted to know and I told her everything once she became of age and um, she searched for the family I already had called his birth uh, oldest sibling his mother um, had a child out of wedlock by a bad seed, they said. A I don't know if he was an ex-con or what. And the oldest sibling, he, my son had five half-brothers. 
the oldest sibling took her in and um, she gave them to us. It was such a precious gift uh, from her heart and soul. And I wrote a chapter in my book about the adoption and how we were so blessed to get our son and bring him into our home and love him to death. And he's turned out wonderful. Uh, all three of our sons were very proud of. And, um, you know, some people I, I just, I don't understand why they blame somebody that's gone through what I've gone through. That, that doesn't make sense, but they do. It's like you're guilty until proven innocent in a yeah, way. That's true. And they're quick to judge. Uh, oh, yeah. That's that cancel culture. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but I mean, people have got to stop and, you know, try to sort out the facts before they jump to a conclusion. Right. Yeah, they, they do need to understand the effects of these kind of things that I've gone through, including my own addictions to codependency. It produces guilt, silence, anxiety, isolation, withdrawal, uh, PTSD, depression, insomnia, panic attacks, memory blocks, nightmares, um, bedwetting sometimes. I didn't wet the bed, but my mother found me fumbling around in the closet. Sometimes I'd wake up, I'd walk in my sleep, I'd go downstairs. I didn't remember it. My mother reminded me when I was writing my book. She knew I was writing it. And she, she, you know, reminded me of a couple things that I, that I added, like rocking me to sleep when I screamed and screamed and screamed in the night and I had monsters under my bed. And she was a wonderful mother and came and rocked me to sleep, got me back in bed. But it's a double sickness. It's a mental and emotional death mm -hmm. of your soul. And pastors don't understand how to help us heal nine percent i said help help you heal but if you don't understand the anxiety and you don't have empathy uh you can't understand us it's too it's too hard for them they need to be a social worker as well as a pastor they need to go to maybe therapy themselves i don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the dysfunctional family says, don't tell, don't feel, don't share, don't share these horrible, my mother-in-law was like that. Mm -hmm. Don't share, although she told me, oh, all little girls get molested. She called me Bobby. My co-host name on NASCA, National Stop Child Abuse Talk Show, is Bobby Joy. And they say, don't trust, don't get close, don't come out of hiding. Don't let anybody know who you really are. So then you stay shut down. When you're told those kind of things, you just, you know, stay shut down. That's the worst thing you can do to someone. Uh, but, you know, you're, when you meet people, they ha probably had a decent childhood or whatnot, and they, did, they just don't know how to relate. No, family can't relate. Mm -mm. Sometimes well, I, my mother and dad finally did, and they loved it when I wrote my book. They were, I was afraid to write, I wasn't afraid to write my book. It just spilled out. I wrote it in a week. <laughs> One week, my book was written, published three months later, three mm -hmm. years after I faced the sex offender. Mm -hmm. 
I had it all in my journals and it just spilled out chapter after chapter. Thank God I had it written, all mm -hmm. the pain, all the raw pain, because I was writing every day for a whole week. Every night, my husband would come home from work and I'd be, I didn't even know how to use the computer. My son that designed the cover of the book and the illustrations inside um, taught me how to turn on the computer. I didn't want my husband to know I was writing a book. And uh, then when I took him for a walk and I said, honey, this isn't just about sexual abuse, even though it says, listen to the cry of the child, the deafening silence of sexual abuse. I said, this is about all the losses that we went through in our marriage too, mm -hmm. including his father's suicide. I wrote a chapter about that in my book. And that was very hard for him to get over. Men don't usually talk about that. I mean, how can they? Who, who can they talk to unless they have a buddy or a friend that's gone through it or accountability with somebody that they need accountability with? So I, I said, honey, I'm going to start writing my book tomorrow. I quit my nanny job, I think maybe a week or two later. And uh, I started writing and I couldn't stop. And he said, yes, you have my permission, which I didn't really need, but I asked him, I said, can I write about the infidelity in our, in our marriage in my book, a whole chapter? He said, yes, because I need to come clean with my secrets too. Mm -hmm. That was all I needed. Uh, that was all I needed. And I didn't show it to him. I didn't let him read it until it was on the way to publishing. Mm -hmm. I gave a copy to each of my three sons copy of the manuscript before it was published and they were floored they were mm -hmm. absolutely shocked that i'd gone through this we didn't talk about it hardly at all now uh two out of three are close to me one really is he knows you know quite a bit and i'm very open with him um one's not so much but i'm close to all of them in different ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so well that is um amazing that you could do that that takes a lot because it took me two months to write my book and i was writing from 6 30 in the morning till yeah. the time my husband got home at 6 p.m and yeah. uh it was did he take was, you out to eat uh well we grilled we grilled we did a lot of grilling <laughs> but um but yeah because it was in the summertime but um it was just uh, a lot of emotional drudgery to bring up and um going through transcripts things like that but right. uh, then i handed it all off to a publisher and let her deal with the nightmare and she brought it to where it is <laughs> but i mean um you know, I had a good, I have a good support system with my husband yeah, and good. my publisher. And um, it's, it's just been great and, and very close friends. You know, you got to keep your circle tight because you sure do. if you, you, know, you have other friends that, you know, sometimes you think you're close with them and then you talk about some things, you know, I had one friend flip out on me for no reason. Oh, did I? Oh, yeah. did, okay. That, that's interesting because, you know, she knew what was going on in my life and she knew the whole story because we had known each other since like 2003. Yeah. And um, I just, I, I felt bad because he was like, you know, it's a loss of a friendship and yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I would never have flipped out on someone and hung up the phone. I, I'm just not that type of person, I guess. You know? Oh, I hate it when they hang the phone up on you. I hate it. 
Yeah, it's a power play. It's a power play, and uh, then they block you from everything. <laughs> it's right. like, come on, you know. It's such but, a loss. It is. It is. But they weren't your friend, really. That that's exactly what my other friend said, and my other friend said, "Well, maybe she's having a menopausal moment." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not going to deal with that anymore. So. Well, I did get an apology letter from this one woman that. I was extremely close to. I told her, um, I might have sent her a couple chapters or emails about my book, and she and her husband wanted to meet with me. And so did the pastor that abused me in spirit, with spiritual abuse in one of the churches that we went to. And I refused because I thought, here I've spilled my guts. <laughs> I've written a phenomenal book. Um, nobody's going to discipline me or talk to me. And I knew it was coming. And her husband said, I thought this book was about sexual abuse. So he, um, you know, wouldn't talk to me uh, for a long time and they wanted to meet with us and, and I refused to. Now she did years later, maybe six, seven years later. And I was close to this woman and I, I still love her. We don't communicate anymore. but. Um, it was her husband that, you know, wanted to shut down on us. So hmm. it, it was hard. But, you know, you, you're right. You have to choose your friends, one or two close friends that support your goals. That's all you need. Yeah, that's right. That's, you know, you, you can't trust. You just can't trust everybody <laughs> like no, you'd you like, can't. you know. No. Uh, I'm so glad we had this conversation and I'd like to have you back on the show again. Thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. been wonderful. It has. It's been um, eye-opening and I hope everyone takes something away from our conversation and gets your book and maybe, you know, give it to someone that is struggling out there. Me too. And, you know, and so hang on, don't, don't uh, jump off. Okay. I'm just going to read the uh, outro. Okay, Slam the Gal is a podcast that helps the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again in the future for another episode with uh, Barbara Joy and other guests. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on.